Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado on the Anschutz Medical Campus. Today we're gathered around the scope to speak with some of the authors of an editorial published in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology on Pathology and Abortion Rights Advocacy, Considerations in a Post-Roll World. I'm pleased to be joined by several of the authors. Welcome everyone to PathPod. Hi. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having us. So our audience can put names to voices. Why don't I have everyone introduce yourself? My name is Garrett Booth. I'm a faculty member at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my clinical specialty is uh, on the CP side and in blood banking. Great. Hello, everyone. I'm Nicole Jackson. I'm an associate medical examiner for King County um, at their medical examiner's office, as well as a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington in their department of lab med and pathology, as well as one of the co-founders and board members of the Society of Black Pathologists. I'm Ann Mills. I'm a gynecologic pathologist in Virginia, and uh, I come to this conversation with both a personal and a professional interest in the care of women and people with uteri who can get pregnant. Uh, hi, I'm Ellie Shevashanes. I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern um, University, Northwestern Memorial Hospital. I am the uh, medical director of the autopsy division here, and I specialize in uh, GYN and perinatal pathology um, more specifically. And hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy Jacobs. I'm uh, currently a transfusion medicine blood bank uh, fellow at Yale New Haven Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. Um, excited to uh, talk with you all today. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is a really interesting topic to me. I'm a, as many of you know, I'm a pediatric pathologist. So this is certainly something that I deal with as, a, as someone who does perinatal autopsy. When we're on PathPod, I always like to hear from our guests about their careers and their practice. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in pathology. Uh, I guess I can start. Uh, so the, to the PathPod listeners, I've done a few episodes now, so you're probably familiar with my story, but I started in general surgery, um, didn't like the lifestyle, the culture, and then found myself more fascinated with the specimens we were taking out and switched um, into pathology back in New Orleans with the specific intention of doing um, autopsy in some capacity. I... I'm a person who actually really loved everything that I did in medical school and seriously considered a number of specialties, um, really loved sort of direct patient care. But when I was choosing what I wanted to do as a career, I uh, was looking for something that I knew I'd be happy doing for decades. Um, and I'm fascinated by, you know, pathophysiology and all of the things pathologists typically say about why they love pathology. And that's very true, of course, for me as well. But it was also something that I could just see myself being very happy doing for, you know, 30 years, um, that I would always find something interesting, always never feel really burned out by the work that I was doing, because um, the combination of the intellectual component, but also like, you know, a good lifestyle that I feel like I'm really taking care of a lot of patients every day, uh, but in a way that, you know, is sustainable for me. So that's why I chose pathology. Building on that, I, I agree. I, I like just about everything that I was required to rotate through, but the fascinating part for me was always checking the labs. And I wanted to know more about the why, the, the why for the surgical pathology or lab medicine side of things. And I, I recognize that on all of my rotations, I, I was always asked, or, you know, you could have an opportunity. Do you want to follow the specimen? 
And I always said yes. And I think to the shock of the people that were um, putting that out as an option, I was usually the only one. And I would ask, do you know where the lab is? And universally, they would say, no, Uh, let us know what you come up with. And uh, so I spent most of my medical school training uh, just following tissue or blood or urine or whatever it was off to the lab. And it became a a very easy, natural fit because I thought, I I like this other stuff, but this this is interesting and uh, agreed. With Dr. Shane's, you could do this for decades and decades and it would still be intellectually very curious. My path to pathology is somewhat unique in that I actually have a parenting pathologist. Uh, you may recognize Stacy Mills from Sternberg and Histology for Pathologists. Um, that is my dad. And I had the privilege of working on faculty with him actually for five years prior to his retirement in 2020. But Long before that, I uh, enjoyed watching him go through a career that really seemed to fulfill him and interest him. He's an incredibly brilliant man, and I could tell that he was in a field that kept his mind um, always engaged and um, really also allowed for a balanced life. You know, he was always at the dinner table. We were able to take family vacations. So I could tell it was a career that would really feed me intellectually, allow me to care for patients, but also allow me to be with my family and, um, have that balanced life. Uh, so I I always had it in the back of my mind. My love for pathology really blossomed actually via my love for gynecologic care and gynecologic malignancy care in particular. Um, I initially considered being a gynecologic oncologist, but found myself chasing the frozens uh, more often than retracting. So I think that's a common story um, and led me into pathology with a specific goal to gain expertise in gynecologic pathology. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, I will definitely agree with um, all of my colleagues as well. I think we probably all share kind of that curiosity and that, um, you know, interest in the science and the, and the pathophys aspect of it. Um, definitely the same for me going through medical school. I really enjoyed everything, but it was the um, sitting down, taking a, a second look at things and why certain things was happening and um, was kind of the reason that, that I ended up pursuing pathology. And I guess I'm probably the odd one out of this bunch as I'm the only one that's a CP only trained, um, really enjoy the, the clinical part of the lab, um, the, especially the, the hematology uh, blood bank side of things. And so um, get a little bit of, of direct patient care on the, on the transfusion service as well. So that kind of satisfies that, that clinical um, thing that I, that I also enjoy. This group represents some of the 18 authors that got together and wrote an editorial to the American Journal of Clinical Pathology. The topic we're going to talk about is how the June 2022 decision of the Supreme Court to essentially end Roe v. Wade, the practice of pathology has changed since that decision. Because I think it is important to, to talk about how, how laws and regulations impact our, our practice and our patients. But I want to start a little bit with how, how you came to this, the decision to, to write this article and how this group of folks came together. What was the driver for putting this article together? Many of us, uh, virtually all of us, were probably thinking about this even before the final Dobbs decision was handed out. The moment that the leaked version came out, it forced all of us to to uh, look deep inside ourselves, think about our social political stance. Um, and the origin story, if you will, of, of this brief manuscript I think has its roots with Jeremy and I having chronic insomnia and text messaging each other about this 
and being upset about this and wanting to do something about it. And as we thought more about it, we we came up with a, a draft version of this and began to share it with others that we already knew um, that were pre-identified as individuals that had worked on previous projects with us, particularly projects related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we we kind of knew where they they stood on the political spectrum. And some of the feedback that we received was um, somewhat mixed, um, but it was also somewhat uh, jarring to hear that, that there were people that um, were afraid to talk or write or to put their name on a paper for fear of retribution or retaliation. And I think that this um, was a another moment for, for myself, and I know that Jeremy, we talked about it, of having to pause and reflect upon the, the degree and the magnitude of privilege that we have as, as white men physicians in this country. And we were talking about the, the topic and texting about the topic and emailing about the topic. And we felt that we wanted to do more. And as the, as the paper progressed, we, we shopped it around, as I said, and including sending it out to uh, pre-submission inquiries to other journals. And the feedback from those journals was nothing. It was a topic that um, up to this point in my professional career, I've never had a pre-submission inquiry that was met with crickets. They just simply chose not to respond which I think on some level might be um, discouraging enough for some people to just stop or, or quit. Um, and I think that when, when we reflected upon this, we, we thought this was a, even more of a reason that we had to, to get this out. The, the problem that we then encountered was to, to whom can we share this and how, how, do, we, how do we develop, uh, how do we find people to to look at this critically, to contribute their lived experience, their varied experience across pathology. And um, I think, Jeremy, you're probably the best person to speak to uh, how, how that came to be. Like Gary said, I think, I th I actually, I think this kind of all started, um, was kind of a, even a little more narrow as, as um, well, you know, obviously both of us being in the same field, we uh, were discussing the ABB, the, um, the, the Transfusion Medicine Society um, annual meeting was going to be held in one of the states that was um, obviously had a trigger law in place um, and had, you know, there was there was a lot of ramifications of this that, you know, people in our field directly related to us that might um, experience based on this. And so we had a lot of kind of our close friends and colleagues share in their concerns about attending meetings in states uh, that, that did have these, these trigger laws that were to go into effect. Um, and that's really the first part of this that kind of really got us thinking about, you know, how does this affect us as, you know, pathologists, physicians, and then just kind of the, the, you know, as people, essentially people that are treating healthcare providers. Um, and so that's kind of what got us thinking originally about this. And so, yeah, so as Garrett said, we kind of drafted up, it was, you know, as, as not so much of as an advocacy piece as just a, um, you know, what, what we can do to ensure that our colleagues are, are kind of protected and our patients are protected. 
Um, and so that's kind of what, where this, where this conversation came about, you know, some people were interested, some people were interested, but what felt they couldn't contribute. Um, we realized, you know, at, kind of what, what this might become, um, and how this might impact people. And so I think it kind of came, came about from that. And then, uh, trying to identify experts, you know, we, we felt like this was bigger than just, you know, transfusion medicine, blood banking. This really was a, was a, you know, obviously a physician thing, but really where we could speak from it, um, as a pathologist. Um, and we wanted to, um, you know, get a, get a diverse expert group essentially with people who had, um, all these different experiences and how it might affect them and how they, you know, they care for patients and how they interact with patients. And so I think that was kind of where it, kind of how it developed from its beginning stages to, to where we started getting, um, our, our, our decently large author group together. Do you want to share with them how the authorship line came together? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So as Garrett said, we had, um, we initially just approached, you know, a few of our, 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 you know, friends, colleagues that we had, um, worked on other, um, you know, whether you want to call it a sensitive or a controversial topic that, that we kind of, um, we kind of knew where everybody stood and weren't really um, too concerned about them, you know, how they might feel. And so we had just, you know, had kind of a draft. And so we approached them and they, again, to somewhat to our surprise, um, they were uh, either, either concerned about it or um, uncomfortable when, when we began these conversations, there was so much unrest, I think, for many folks who were initially approached about potential risk. And I understand, right? I think that uh, in this political climate, it's very scary to speak up. Um, at the same time, we are physicians who have vowed to protect our patients. And in these cases, we see the harm to women that withholding abortion care does in a way that many people do not. And so I feel obligated to amplify their stories, share their stories, share the realities of what we see as pathologists, which are just a part of, you know, the, the myriad issues that people deal with in pregnancy that may lead them um, to select termination. Um, and I think that in defense of those women and um, advocacy for them, it's important for us to to use our sphere of influence as pathologists um, to get involved in this conversation. Uh, and it is scary to think that there's a risk to speaking up, um, but at the same time, I think if we use our touchstone that we are here for the patients and we do right by the patients, we can't go wrong. We weren't exactly sure what to do. Um, again, being uh, CP only, I don't, you know, I, I don't have a lot of colleagues and friends in all of the different pathology specialties. And so honestly, I, um, you know, put out a, uh, put out a tweet on Twitter, um, one afternoon and said, man, I would love to have some, you know, some pathologists, whether it, you know, uh, faculty residents, fellows, um, you know, people that are passionate about this, that believe this is an important topic that believe, you know, that it's important to our field. Um, I would, you know, I would love to collaborate with you and work with you and, and learn from you and potentially put together a piece to kind of help our, you know, all these, all our different pathology societies kind of develop guidance and develop outlines of how we can, you know, practice the best practice for our patients in this new world, essentially. Um, and so I, I believe, I believe Dr. Uh, Ann Mills was the, was one of the first ones to reply within like, 
five minutes or something. So I um, I saw the um, request for involvement on Twitter and was excited to get involved in the project uh, because of my own uh, personal interest and investment in the issue. Um, I also immediately thought of some really phenomenal experts in other areas that I thought could add their voices to the conversation. Um, and so I was eager to eager to collaborate um, and very quickly was uh, involved in, in crafting the next iteration of the draft. It's a good idea to be mindful about where we host meetings, but also having seen the way meetings are planned, I think practically speaking, it's very hard to make a quick impact on where meetings are housed. And um, I thought we had an opportunity to really expand the reach of the conversation to include uh, the impact that abortion rights have on the care of patients in oncology and the really critical role pathologists play in that conversation. Um, it was critical that perinatal pathologists weigh in, which motivated me to get Dr. Ellie Shane's around involved. And then, of course, uh, maternal deaths in pregnancy are a huge issue. And one that I thought Dr. Nicole Jackson could speak to really eloquently. I will say that um, when I got involved, I, I was very impressed with uh, Jeremy and Garrett's key for she attitude and enthusiasm about amplifying um, women's voices in this conversation while they did start the project they recognized that it very, very clearly needed um, needed other voices, needed a lot of participation from folks for whom um, this issue probably felt just physiologically closer to home. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that um, and, and their, uh, their support in that arena. When Jeremy had proposed like, uh, you know, a call for help, if you will, on social media, I my initial thought was, that's nice. It won't work. And but part of the reason why I thought it wouldn't work was because, you know, I, I'm fairly new to the social media world. And I think at the time, I think I had a, a hundred people following me. I'm sure half of them are bots. And and I don't, Jeremy, how many how many followers did you have on Twitter when you sent the not a, not a lot. Um, I was definitely not not one of under, the under 400. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. And and I, I remember thinking like, well, maybe one person would respond and that'd be great. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to hear that. And how quickly people responded. Jeremy started to email me saying, there are people that are responding like in, in real time. And I thought, no, uh, that's not true. And, and I started seeing that the, the tweets go from the social media domain into the email domain and very quickly, People um, volunteered, self-identified and said, we believe in this. We believe it's important and uh, we'd like to share our thoughts in, on this topic. And I was very pleasantly surprised. And actually, it made it um, feel even more important that it, we could quickly reach so many people, people that we'd never met, people that I, I didn't know. I was I'm looking at your faculty pages being like, oh, what do they study? What do they research? Because I didn't, I didn't know them. And it, it's a risk. It's a risk to put it out in social media, but it's equally a, a risk for people to self-identify and, and to take that leap of faith and to trust people to, to review it, to contribute to it, um, to put their name on it. I think that, uh, that origin story is, is fairly unique to crowdsource a paper in pathology on a social political topic. And, and credit to the American Journal of Clinical Pathology, credit to the editor-in-chief, Dr. Steve Croft, for, for agreeing to 
to review, to take on a paper of this nature. Uh, again, there were other pathology journals that did not even respond to a pre-submission inquiry. So uh, I think we should acknowledge AJCP and their willingness to um, speak to this from a pathologist as a field, as a workforce, whereas others would. They already mentioned that that Dr. Ann Mills was one of the first people. You know, she's a huge advocate in general. Um, you know, uh, just a, a remarkable pathologist and a remarkable person. And she actually trained me. And so I was, I, I have in my ongoing love-hate relationship with Twitter, I ha- was on a uh, several months long um, abstention from, from, from the platform. Uh, I have, you know, regressed. I'm back on Twitter. Um, it, it is an amazing educational um, opportunity, but also draws me in and I have a hard time uh, balancing that. So, you know, um, so I, I was on on Twitter at the time, but um, Dr. Mills immediately texted me and said, you know, she, she, as somebody who she knows well, um, who also is involved in GYN and perinatal, specifically the perinatal pathology component, um, knew that I would be interested in, in sort of, you know, giving, lending my voice. And as we started working on the draft that was at that point, I think uh, we sort of all simultaneously realized that if somebody in forensics would be wonderful. And immediately the first person we thought of was Dr. Jackson. So. Oh, thank you. And yes, I received a, a direct message from Dr. Mills via Twitter and everything just took off from there. By the time I entered the paper, most of it had already been formatted, but I was able to add a few sentences and words here and there to speak to the forensic um, perspective, as well as that of uh, the Black community in America. Tell us the impacts that you just alluded to. What, what specifically are those impacts you mentioned? So uh, there are, goodness, a few. We've only been studying uh, deaths in pregnancy on a national scale since 2003, and that's when the pregnancy checkbox was uh, implemented uh, on the U.S. death certificate. So prior to that, we didn't even know how pregnant people were faring as an entire population. That's not that long ago. Um, And then it took a while for every state to implement it. Since then, we've been able to study deaths and pregnancy, inclusive of the peripartum period. Um, And there are several trends. So we've, I feel like everyone uh, knows we don't do a good job as a nation, uh, keeping both the pregnant individual and baby alive. We have very high uh, maternal mortality rates. And that's not new. One thing that has come out, though, is that homicide the risk of homicide of being killed by another is increased during pregnancy. Um, And that has really only come to light in the past few years. Why? Um, I mean, I think you can imagine, depending on your situation, the stress that comes along with uh, a pregnancy, whether expected or unexpected, you know, potential financial strain. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the healthiest relationship first. This is an extended additional stressor, even I think if you have, you know, the ideal relationship. Um, But people are trying to elucidate that. So that's, that's a big concern. You know, if someone's pregnant in a situation, they're not safe. Maybe there's already intimate partner violence. They don't have that option now, depending on where they live to terminate that pregnancy and perhaps save their life. Right. So that's one of several ways um, specific to uh, lower socioeconomic 
um, communities, Black communities, Latino communities in America, they already um, had higher rates uh, than you would expect for, say, the white community in America. Uh, and certainly there's a large, large, large concentration of specifically Black and Latinos in America in the South and in many of these states that, you know, have these trigger laws owing to, you know, immigration, owing to slavery. Um, and there's so many factors, right, that go into why people have an abortion. Uh, and why, you know, whether that's on the before pregnancy side, you know, people think of rape, people think of, you know, just failed condoms, whatever, but also people start to consider the future, the cost of raising that child, uh, the ability to care, just access to health care uh, is a big issue. And so it's going to these rules and these trigger laws disproportionately affect communities that are already um, marginalized, harmed by systems we have in place, um, which is painful to see. So many people in this nation not care about their fellow humans, um, and it's very predictable outcomes. Dr. Jackson's described how the end of Roe has impacted forensic pathology, Dr. Mills and Dr. Shane's. How has GYN and perinatal pathology been impacted by the end of Roe? You know, I struggle sometimes because my focus as a pathologist is very much centered on the critical nature of abortion care for women with cancer, because that is my professional space. But I do think it's worth emphasizing that focusing on that doesn't diminish the very real need for this kind of care in myriad other scenarios. Uh, Dr. Jackson will emphasize the safety of women and the uh, you know horrifying rates of homicide of pregnant women. And uh, she sees first and foremost, what can happen if a patient is unsafe and carrying a pregnancy. And um, I just think it's worth emphasizing that there are many, many reasons a woman may choose to pursue this course. Um, from my perspective, working chiefly in the gynecologic cancer space, I think it's really important that any physician who plays a role in GYN cancer care help the public understand that these are not uncommon scenarios wherein a cancer diagnosis may require termination of the pregnancy for appropriate treatment. I think the public doesn't have an appreciation for just how common these challenges are um, and how important the access to abortion care is for cancer patients. I don't think that's the only reason that a, a patient might consider this path, but it's certainly a very important one and one that I think we as pathologists can help inform the public about. You know, the public is very insulated unless they've had a loved one grapple with that kind of challenge. Um, they're quite insulated from, you know, the frequency. Uh, they're not they're not every day, but certainly we see these issues in medicine um, with some frequency. I am part of our weekly gynecologic oncology tumor board, and it is quite frequent that we will have a patient with a new cancer diagnosis who has a pregnancy and difficult decisions have to be made. And they um, really are not ours to make. They certainly should not be the government's to make. That woman should have the right to decide whether she can obtain care for her life-threatening, potentially life-ending malignancy or not. Um, and often that is contingent on her ability to also get abortion care. Yeah, so I think um, there's there's two you know important elements here. One of them is is something that I think really influenced um, why I was really happy to join in this effort in writing this. And that is that I think um, the pathology societies and, and, and sort of um, the people who develop 
our guidelines really need to be aware of the legal ramifications of the reports that we put out. And um, I think most of us in GYN and perinatal pathology relatively quickly started thinking about whether we needed to make any changes to our reports um, and whether that whether they could potentially have legal ramifications both for providers and for patients. And that actually touches on the other part, which is that from coming from Illinois, which is sort of a refuge state where, um, you know, Governor Pritzker has been very clear that this is a state that will maintain abortion rights as, as long as, um, as, as, as we can. And, and, you know, there's a real emphasis on uh, protecting um, the right to abortion within Illinois. Uh, we are surrounded by states uh, for which that is not true. And not only that, but Chicago is, of course, a transportation hub. And so people coming from around the country, you know, can easily get to Chicago. So we knew we were going to see an increase in um, the need for abortion access. And so, you know, um, our family planning uh, colleagues knew pretty quickly they were going to have to increase their availability. And that, of course, translates into increased pathology specimens. And so just an increased volume. So just from that perspective of seeing more, um, having more people coming from out of state, and how does that influence our practice of pathology when you're, you're not only the volume is increasing, but the, the reports that you're writing have you know, potential long-term legal ramifications um, for these people who are not even all coming from within Illinois. And so I was really eager to, to contribute to a call for us as pathologists in the United States to have, um, you know, have a discussion about how our reports uh, can be used in, in, that con in that legal context and what the influence is and whether we should have a standardization um, of, of reporting for, for perinatal and GYN pathology. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very interested to see how those conversations play out in terms of standardizing things. Are there? I think we've all had them, right? I mean, most of us within our departments have had those conversations, right? right. I, th I think this, the discussions at the national level, I think, would be really important to have. I know that a group of perinatal pathologists, um, different folks from across the field, is actively working on guidance to let us know exactly how we should report our products of conception specimens so that we're providing all the information that we need to um, and giving you know clear and accurate answers, again, without uh, misstating anything or putting anyone at risk unnecessarily. I know that we have historically not had great guidelines for how we report products of conception specimens. And I think we have to be extremely mindful of reporting in a way that doesn't unnecessarily endanger anyone. Obviously, we have to be truthful. But, um, you know, stating a date, for instance, um, on a products of conception specimen, uh, or, or giving a, a date range, first trimester, second trimester, when really, we are actually not necessarily that qualified at giving, you know, early second trimester versus first trimester data could potentially endanger somebody. Um, the term fetal used when actually embryonic tissue is identified under the microscope could unnecessarily endanger a woman or her provider. So I think that we're all looking for guidance on how to be um, both accurate and precise in our language. And so I think we just have to be in incredibly mindful and um, come up with very good standards on how we report again so that we are adding to her care, adding to her well-being, 
um, and um, just truthful and and uh, doing right by by everyone involved. I think one of the things that has been a concern in pediatric pathology, and I'm wondering if you've shared this concern uh, in your group, is that there may be some discouragement in having fetuses that have malformations and, and pregnancies that don't end well or, or elected to end, having those submitted for autopsy and genetic testing. Uh, have you seen any impact on, on that type of submission being discouraged? Uh, are, are people fearful of submitting those specimens? Thankfully, we haven't seen that. Um, we haven't seen a, a decrease in sort of request for autopsy. Um, I think that uh, specifically because of the the laws as they are in Illinois and also the very busy uh, family planning um, division, they do quite a lot of um, DNEs and sort of the sort of 18 to 23 week um, stage of pregnancy. And those, you know, we can anticipate increases in those as, as, as pregnant people seek health care um, from other states. Our policy is that all of those come, of course, for pathologic examination. Um, and, you know, I, I am value that we have the expertise here um, in my institution with a separate perinatal division to sort of evaluate those anomalies because it, there really are, you know, while abortion um, at that stage of pregnancy is rare, it is, you know, by, as all of us here know, but it is um, far more frequently for, you know, um, significant fetal anomalies and evaluating those pathologically often provides really helpful information to families our practice has remained the same because at the moment our political climate has, or at least our um, legal climate has not changed, but we anticipate that there may well be changes in the future. And so certainly it is routine in gynecologic oncology tumor board for us to talk about the challenges we expect to face in the future. Um, should our patients lose the options they now have to pursue chemotherapy uh, to pursue potential hysterectomy um, if they require it for treatment of a malignancy when they have also been carrying a pregnancy. Can I ask a question of the group? Because I think, Dr. Shane, you, you touched on a really important thing about training and competency to be able to sign out these highly complicated cases. What, if anything, are uh, pediatric pathologists or professional organizations in that domain going to do for trainees that are getting their fellowship experience in states that have trigger laws in effect, you, you certainly can't become competent if you've never seen it. And it creates a dichotomy of, of those that know and are, are capable of signing out these complicated cases and those that have no exposure. What, what will be the response within pathology? Will people vote with their feet and um, start to go to places where there are fellowship opportunities in states that um, have abortion as a healthcare right? I mean, I think that's a really important question. I think that in both uh, pediatric, I'm not pediatric trained, but in pediatrics and also in GYN, um, the paucity of, of either DNC or DNA specimens to be trained on. And this goes, this isn't just fellowship. I mean, I think that a standard, well-trained AP pathologists should be able to, you know, sign out products of conception. Um, and be able to recognize the warning signs, like I need to work this up for a mole, I need to work this up further, 
um, you know, if they're not seeing these specimens, then certainly that is going to be, um, you know, uh, a, a deficit in their education. So I'm not sure that trainees are necessarily um, considering that. I know that that's, I, I know that uh, OB and surgical trainees certainly are considering lack of access to that sort of training. I don't know that pathology trainees are thinking about that, uh, but I think that we as as the people teaching these trainees certainly should be. That's a really great question. Pediatric pathology requires a certain number of autopsies and a large number of them typically are perinatal, uh, but it requires to complete a fellowship that you perform a certain number of autopsies. Uh, so I, I haven't heard a concern amongst trainees that that would be a problem. Uh, I do know that this year it's been difficult to get people to apply to pediatric pathology. I think that has more to do with historical trends around when residents are exposed to pediatric pathology as a specialty and that it tends to be later in their training and the application deadlines and acceptances into other competitive specialties is happening earlier and earlier and earlier. And so people that are at the end of practically of, you know, or in the middle of their second year of a four-year APCP residency are having to pick a fellowship specialty really before they've even seen pediatric pathology live and in person, even if they have access to it at their home institution. And I, I think the pandemic also hurt in that regard as well, because we couldn't have people travel to the institutions that provide that specialized experience to get to give them a sense of what that training is like. And, you know, I, I always tell people that, like you mentioned earlier, you'll never be bored in pathology. You'll never be bored in pediatric pathology because you can do anything from blood banking to autopsy and anything in between, you know, on AP so there's, there's a wealth of opportunities in, in pediatric pathology right now. And I'll plug that there's open fellowships and job opportunities all over the place. Garrett and Jeremy, are there specific impacts in the clinical laboratory based on the, the end of row? Yeah. To take abortion away will have a domino effect that will cross the entirety of our society, the entirety of pathology. From a blood bank perspective, one of the things that that uh, Jeremy and I was discussing is that, you know, abortion is one of the more common surgical procedures performed on women in the United States. And so if you remove that in states like Tennessee, which has a trigger law that went into effect in August of, of 2022, that we're going to have more pregnancies that go to term. And as a result, you're going to have a greater opportunity for perinatal uh, mortality and morbidity, including postpartum hemorrhage or intrapartum hemorrhage and so the, the total use of blood or activations of an obstetric massive transfusion protocol we anticipated would go up. And uh, when you get that far along in pregnancy, um, that it may actually result in not only more activations, but more blood per activation. And if you put that in the context of what the pandemic has done, not only to the international blood supply, but specifically to the U.S. blood supply, we worried that we would run out of blood and that we would have such a dramatic shortage if this were to happen, that the ramifications for that immediate patient uh, would be dire, but that the, the um, downside would also be that the remaining blood supply for all non-OBGYN patients could be dramatic. If you think of the US blood supply as a fixed volume or fixed quantity, uh, if you draw off to use for one patient population at a disproportionately higher rate, we don't have an, uh, 
a donor supply side that is uh, able to respond as quickly. And, and in the pandemic, the total number of donations has dramatically dropped. And there's a, many reasons for that. Uh, additionally, even for for women that have uh, elected to proceed with pregnancy, um, we know that pregnancy in and of itself um, carries a risk for aluminization, meaning that fetal red blood cells make it into maternal circulation. And uh, if there's a foreign epitope on there, they can mount an immune response. And if you put that in the context, of, again, of the blood supply, the moment a woman makes an antibody, the, the total pool of, of available safe blood will dramatically shrink. So if we have more pregnancies, more pregnancies going to term, more bleeding, diathesis, or risk, and we have more aluminization, you know, we were looking at it from a clinical laboratory perspective of saying, what are we going to do as a professional field, as a society, uh, when we either run out of blood or have increased rates of specialized blood products that are needed for these higher risk um, patients? And we didn't have a, we don't have an action plan. We don't have a response. And in the pandemic, we don't have the bandwidth to to mobilize new blood donors uh, to the degree that um, that we we probably should be able to. So, Garrett, it sounds like you're anticipating an increase in high risk pregnancies that are going to need greater levels of care, including blood blood product. Yeah, and um, I think that these these trigger laws vary from state to state. In Tennessee, the the bill is known as the Heartbeat Bill, and so you know a, a conceptus can have a a, a heartbeat of sorts, um, but maybe have a lethal anomaly that uh, would otherwise be terminated and now won't or won't be able to unless there's an immediate threat to the mother's life. As a result, it becomes a higher risk pregnancy and we're just playing the numbers. If we have more high risk pregnancies and we have a greater degree of uh, bleeding or hemorrhage related events, do we have the blood supply that could adequately respond to that? And uh, we felt that the answer was no. And the unintended consequence of all of the non-OBGYN, including uh, our perioperative uh, services and our hemonc services, which are the dominant users of blood products in this country, may not understand that these trigger laws will adversely impact their clinical service as well. And that's... We wanted that discussion to be out there because we saw a paucity of response from our professional societies. Some of this might be because they're they're working on developing consensus. Uh, some of this might be out of fear of what to put out. They don't want to alienate people. But we felt that we weren't willing to wait. And we wanted to um, begin the discussions immediately and to get that out there as quickly as possible so that people can have these discussions or we could provide a loose framework for those discussions so that journal clubs or podcasts or departmental meetings, residency conferences could hopefully build upon this um, going forward. Maybe still the most common procedure in, in U.S. hospitals is blood transfusion. Um, while we are doing a better job at limiting the number of people that require a blood transfusion, um, I think Dr. Jackson made this point earlier is that the U.S. maternal mortality rate is still, um, you know, it's 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 not obviously where we want to be. Um, and so there are a subset of these patients that do require blood and in some cases um, a significant amount. And, you know, without without giving too many details, we 
we've recently had um, cases over the over the past few months where we have had significant um, fetal maternal hemorrhage, um, postpartum hemorrhage, um, requiring you know 50, 60, 70 units of blood, where we've essentially drained our blood bank inventory, and we've had to decline certain transfusions to other patients who um, you know who might need them. And I think this you know there's there's definitely data out there to suggest that certain patients who might not typically have carried a pregnancy um, for as long um, may, uh, you know, require more blood products than others. And so I definitely think it impacts not only, not only patients who can get abortions or who previously could get abortions, but other patients who might not even be, have that consideration as well. So I think that's something to, something to consider from, from a patient perspective. So you mentioned the difficulties in getting this initially published and that not everybody was interested in engaging you about it. What's been the response that you as a group have received since this was published? I'm looking at the altmetric score right now, and it looks great. There are people that are viewing it. There are people that are downloading it. There are people that are tweeting about it. And I think that's, as a group, we can all say that was part of the mission to get people engaged, to continue the discussion um, so that we don't just accept this and think, well, okay, we're just going to have to deal with it. We, we need the labs, the surgical pathology, the pediatric pathology, the clinical laboratories to all formulate a plan, whether it's increase in, in volume, as Dr. Shane's points out, or what are the legal ramifications for signing out uh, specimens that have product of conception in them? What, what will happen to to patients and providers alike that that send these specimens, um, I think these are really important questions. I believe I retweeted the original um, on Twitter and then screenshot and posted on Instagram. The Instagram actually got much more feedback. Um, I think I have a wider variety of followers, so not just forensic pathologists, not just pathologists, just a ton of people, even complete strangers. And I received a lot. Of positive feedback, especially from non-physicians saying, thank you for sticking your neck out there and being the voice we need right now. So I've had nothing but positive. Yeah, I've also received, you know, positive feedback. Um, I would like it to be seen more widely within the pathology community. I do think these are conversations we need to be having. Um, but yes, thankfully, really just positive. Primarily, I have been met with tremendous gratitude um, from folks for whom this is a close to home issue, um, be they care providers or patients. I think um, thus far, overwhelmingly, there's been gratitude. I think in medicine, we have a tendency to feel like we have to stay in a prescribed lane. But I think you can also make the argument that this is very much in our lane as care providers. Um, again, my lens is very much in cancer care, but I think there are many other reasons that we overlap with as pathologists, be it transfusion medicine, when many of our patients undergo um, hemorrhage during delivery or in the, in the um, course of their pregnancy, like this is our wheelhouse. Um, and I think it it is very much, um, worth having our voices in this conversation. I think we all have a voice and a sphere of influence and um, there is a space for this conversation in pathology. One of the feedback um, comments that I got early on, um, kind of right after we, um, it was um, 
either either accepted or or maybe maybe it was even when we were actually kind of crowdsourcing the idea. I actually did get feedback from a couple of people who said, um, you know, why is this pathologist concerned? You all don't see patients, um, and so I think that kind of misnomer, even in the um, even in the medical field, is really something mm-hmm. that kind of has you know. I think this kind of touches on the fact that, um, you know, this is not only an OB's concern or not only a pediatrician's concern, or, you know, it's all of us, regardless of what medical specialty we're in. And I think, um, I think this group, uh, it really has done a, an excellent job. You know, I want to, I want to thank my colleagues for all of their, again, expertise and, and kind of insight into this and how, how this decision and how this, um, transformation in in u.s government policy really affects the pathology field um even if we don't you know even if we're not seeing patients in a you know 50 patients in a day in a clinic or or whatever um you know we we are still you know taking care of patients and i do think this this directly impacts us and how we um how we can take care of our patients as well I just wanted to add on to something Jeremy mentioned when people say, you know, pathologists don't see patients. And I hear that all the time. And I like to remind people that in forensics, you know, our patient isn't only that one deceased person, it's the entire community we serve. So for me, you know, this issue, this Roe versus Wade being eliminated, um, it's, you know, it's any potential person that can get pregnant can potentially die in a, in a way that they come to us, you know that pregnant individual dies outside of care, you know, dies at home, they come to us, you know, whether that's homicide, whether that's natural, still comes to us if it's not uh, um, a witnessed or managed care death. So people say that all the time and it really gets under my skin because I'm like, you do not get what we do at all. But yeah, I mean, I have to (laughs) chime in there because I went into medicine because I care deeply about patient care, right? That's why we do what we do. Um, You know, everything from when I make a cancer diagnosis that weighs on me, I'm thinking about the, the, the woman I am diagnosing with cancer. Um, When I am looking at these perinatal, you know, products of conception specimens, I am thinking about each of these is still my patient and I care very deeply. And as a physician, you know, I stuck very much to the practical, right? How can we talk about this topic practically in terms of guidelines and, 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 and reports and things? Because I think that's something that we need to have a conversation about just like regardless of what your opinion is on this issue, that has to be talked about. Take that aside, I, I care so much about people as a physician that I can't be silent about this because denying healthcare to a huge portion of people in, in this country is just wrong. So, you know, as a physician, I feel very strongly as a pathologist specifically, I do think we need to focus on that practical. And so that's, that's my, where I'm coming from. I really appreciate all of you for having come together and, and put this article out there to be a starting point for discussions. What do each of you hope are the forums for additional discussions and what sorts of work products do you hope would come out of those discussions? I, I can say, so I'm on the ASCP resident council. And so one of the things that we're involved in is um, we are creating a, a, an enlarging, I guess, our DEI committee and, and, and advocacy committee. Um, and so we 
one of our goals at our, um, we just had our uh, annual ASCP meeting. One of the things we discussed was this topic and, and what ASCP um, as an organization can do um, kind of to Dr. Shane's and Dr. Jackson's point of um, establishing guidelines um, in, in the various parts of pathology to kind of protect patients, protect pathologists um, who, who might be involved in this in states where it is legal and caring for patients from states where it's not legal and how they can support um, government policies in these states to, to support us as pathologists. And so that, that is one thing that from a resident council perspective for ASCP and ASCP as an organization, that is one of our um, foundational goals for this year is to uh, improve policy and to set policy and, and, and outlines for other, um, I guess, sister or, or brother organizations in pathology is how to, um, you know, how to enact some of these and, and, and protections essentially for both pathologists and patients. And so that's, I think that was one of the things that um, this paper helped uh, highlight is that, you know, we took this to the, the leadership, the, the CEO and the CMO of ASCP and said, look, this is published. We need to, in, in, in your society's journal, we need to make this one of our mission statements for this year. And they, and they um, were very receptive to that. And they read the paper. Um, they, they said, this is fantastic. This is, this, we're going to make this a goal for this year. So I think um, that, was, that was definitely one of my goals um, and one thing that we're still working on. One of the initial um, concerns that, that we had when we were texting back and forth was about the health and safety of individuals attending medical conferences in states with um, abortion trigger laws that went into effect. And, you know, it, it, it uh, was striking to me when reaching out to my own professional society to ask what type of position or action plan did they have in place at the time the national meeting was going to be in the state of Florida. And they had no response. They, I was on the phone and it just went, uh, you know, it's just crickets. And I hope to, to answer your question, Dr. Arnold, I hope that this, um, these types of discussions, whether it's a podcast or the, or the manuscript itself, help to further discussion that we need to um, have a plan in place uh, for all attendees. Um, and that includes women that know they're pregnant, women that may not know that they're pregnant, um, so that we can have a safe uh, environment for people that are able to travel domestically and for our international scientists and colleagues and physicians so that they can come and not potentially risk their life uh, or the life of their unborn child. Um, it, it was an important part of our discussion that all of our pathology societies um, give strong consideration of, of, of the attendees and where they plan on hosting meetings. It matters. And we need to make sure that we advocate for trainees who often don't have a voice, for international scientists and physicians that may have no working knowledge of U.S. state-by-state -state laws. And so it's my sincere hope that we continue to use this paper to further that discussion as well. You know, in forensics, we're often the last responders. And so we kind of clean up, you know, the mess of systems that have fatally failed people. And I, I fear this is what is to come. So I think we would appreciate, and we mentioned this in the paper, you know, platform for our experiences um, of what we're seeing as these very preventable um, predictable outcomes for this court decision. 
Well, I, I really appreciate what your group has contributed to the literature and to the discussion around this topic. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you here on PathPod. Thanks, everyone. Thank Sounds you. good. Thanks. Thank you. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.